we have taken a couple of weeks and thought about the crucifixion and the resurrection of Christ and, and left Romans for those couple of weeks. And before we get back to Romans, I want us to take a few weeks, a couple of three weeks, and just kind of rethink a bit. You know, it's been almost 13 years now since we first gathered in 2006 as Grace Baptist Church. God has blessed unbelievably during that time. We've talked about that over and over and over again. We, we met on Losey Street for five and a half years in a rented facility, and then God, through His blessings and by His grace and His provision, gave us this campus here that is just far beyond anything I could have thought about or hoped for or even thought about praying for. 13 years ago, almost 13 years ago. We'll talk about that in November. But, but, you know, one of the things we did when we got there was we said, when we became a church and then finally when we moved here, one of the things we talked about over and over and over again was we cannot see this gift of God as some kind of sign that we've arrived. We, we cannot see this beautiful facility that God has given. And we had people here yesterday for for the uh, wedding for Anna and, and Landry. And they just walked around, people from Ohio and Canada and England and, and all sorts of places who just said, this is beautiful. This is, wow, this is, I, I wish our church were this beautiful. Just things like that. And I, I thought, well, that is great, but this is not the church. This is just the building. And if we start seeing the building as the church, we will lose sight of what God has called us to be. So this very short mini-series that we're going to look at over the next couple of weeks, next few weeks, is I've entitled just simply God's Original Intent for the Church. And we hear the term original intent a lot in our politics and in our culture today, usually talking about the Constitution. What is the original, content of the, uh, original intent of the Constitution? And that's a valid question to ask in our day. It's a valid question to look at. What do the founders mean when they founded this nation, when they wrote the Constitution, the document on which this nation is founded, what was the founders, what were the founders' in original intent for this nation to be? That's a valid question. But if we look at it in that light and understand in that light, the Word of God is what shares with us what God's original intent is, not for the nation, but for the church. What is God's original intent for His body on this earth? What is God's original intent for the church to be? Did He mean for it to be something that just has great buildings and people look at and, you know, you build things like the Notre Dame Cathedral, which... I've stood in that cathedral before. I've, I've seen the magnificence of the art and the magnificence of the structure and the architecture. And, and it does conjure up a sense of awe within those who, who sit there and stand there. And I've, I've seen that. And then see it just in a matter of a few hours come crumbling down, destroyed, almost completely destroyed, not totally, but almost completely destroyed by, by fire. Is that what God intended? We'll build a lot of structures around and people will say, oh, how wonderful that is, how beautiful that is, how magnificent. No, not at all. Never. God's original intent for the church always had to do with you. 
It always had to do with people, whether they were hiding in a cave somewhere worshiping, or whether they were meeting in a home somewhere worshiping, or whether they did build facilities. I don't think there's anything wrong with building facilities to honor God and worship in, as long as we don't lose sight of the fact that this is not the church. It's merely where the church gathers to worship. It's merely the building where we gather to to, to encourage one another and strengthen one another and build up one another in, in the gospel message and then go out to be the church in the, on the streets of Somerset and the roads of Pulaski County or wherever God takes us. That's what the church is all about. It's not about a building. And, and I said six years ago, seven years ago now, time gets by. Seven years ago I said when we, when we stood here on that first Sunday, and talked about the Bible that's buried beneath the pulpit in the foundation that's open to Romans 1, 16 and 17. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God you know, unto salvation. For all who believe, it, by it the righteousness of God is revealed. I, I talked about how that's the foundation that's under this pulpit. And we must remember that. And we must remember that it's our not being ashamed of the gospel that will push us forward. And, and it's not that we will be proud of a building, but we'll not be ashamed of the gospel. That's the key. If we ever miss that, if we ever lose sight of that, then we lose sight of God's original intent for the church. I talked to somebody yesterday, I won't mention a name, he was here as a part of the wedding. He is on staff at a church in another state, and, and we were just talking about ministry and talking about his position. His position is associate pastor to church there, and, and, and I, we, we got to talking about what people look for in a, in, a, in a pastor, what people look for in someone who will be involved in a ministry, and he, he asked if we had a, a youth pastor. I said, well, we don't call him that, but yes, we do. We have one, and, and we, we talked about that a bit. And he said, well, you know, I, when I was leaving seminary just about two and a half years ago, when I was leaving seminary, I had a lot of churches wanting me to come and candidate for different positions. One of them was for a youth pastor. And he said, I went to one church, came to see me, and they talked with me, and they invited me to come in view of a call. And he said, well, what is that weekend going to entail? And he said, well, we want you to come in and plan a pizza party and we'll observe you how you carry out a pizza party. To which he said, uh, I don't think so. I don't think that's going to work. Very programmatic, very, very much just kind of building something that man can build. That early church, I have a feeling, spent a lot of time saying, Lord, we can't do anything. We don't have wealth. We don't have buildings. We don't have programs. We don't have denominations. We don't have hierarchy. We don't have anything, Lord, except we have you. And Lord, we recognize and we realize that you are really all we need. And so they attempted things that couldn't be done by programs and buildings and denominations and structures. They attempted things that were doomed to fail unless God was in it. Well, the Apostle Paul comes along and begins writing these letters to the churches. And one of the ones he writes to is, a fee, is, is the church at Ephesus, the Ephesian Christians. Take your Bibles, if you will, and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4. 
I'm going to read this whole section that I put in the bulletin, verses 1 through 16, but I, I definitely will not get to all of them today. But I want you to hear it in full before we look at it in part, okay? So Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 through 16. Paul has just spent three chapters talking about doctrinal truth, theological truth, heavy stuff about God's salvation and God sealing us by the Holy Spirit and God drawing us to Christ and God, as I prayed earlier, God blessing us with every, every blessing in heavenly places that we got everything we need and everything we should even desire. And Paul has dealt with that in depth in chapters 1 through 3 and now he comes to what many call the practical section. Romans is broken up that way. We'll see that when we get to chapter 12. But it comes to a, what he call, they call the practical section. And Paul begins to talk about, okay, in light of all that God has done in your salvation, how are you to live it out? And, and he, he starts out in the very first section talking about the body of Christ. So follow along as I read, starting in verse 1. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord. He's in prison in Rome. I therefore a prisoner for the Lord urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. There is one body and one Spirit, just as you were called in one hope that belongs to your call, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and he quotes from Psalm 68, verse 18, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. Then Paul's commentary on that is, in saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he has also descended into the lower regions, the earth? He who descended is the one who also ascended far above all the heavens that he might fill all things, into Paul's commentary on Psalm 68. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, and the shepherds or pastors and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for the building up of the body of Christ, until we all attain to a unity of the faith and to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the statute of the fullness of Christ, so that we may, may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning and craftiness and deceitful schemes. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into Him who is, head, who is the head into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. This is the Word of God. Thanks be to God. 
These first 16 verses, he talks about the church. Now, if we were to go on reading, you'll find out that in verses 17 through 32, he talks about the Christian life, the new life, what it means to be in Christ, what it means to be a believer. But, but before he gets to talking about the individual believer, he talks about the body. I think that's significant. I think Paul sees it's important that you understand yourself as a Christian, not in isolation, not in individuality, but that you see yourself as a part of the body of Christ, a believer who is a part of his body, before you even begin to understand what it means to be a new creature in Christ. You're, you're a part of the body that he is putting together. I, I think that's important. I think Paul put it in that order for that reason. Because to be absent from the church... That is apart from the church, that is not involved in the ministry of the church, is an unknown quantity and an unknown quality anywhere in the New Testament. I had Pastor Ricky read the passage out of 1 Corinthians where Paul reiterates this concept a little more in depth, a little more visually, if you will, about the body of Christ. We are all the body of Christ. We're not all an eye, we're not all an ear, we're not all a nose or hands or feet or whatever. We're, we're all our own parts that God has placed together, He being the head of the body, in order that the body might function in ministry, in order that the body might function together, in order that the body might build up one another, strengthen one another, care for one another in, in every sort of way. In our next term of, of adult Sunday school, and, and you'll be reading more about this in your grace notes, but, but we're going to spend several weeks, how many weeks, Michael? Eight? Eight weeks talking about caring for one another. Uh, using a new book by Ed Welch as our, as our, uh, our textbook, but uh, it's a great book just talking about how do we care for one another and what is the importance of caring for one another. And, and, and that's going to flow right out of what I want to talk about in these passages. That's why I wanted to deal with this before we get into that. If you're not in an adult Sunday school, here's commercial time. If you're not in an adult Sunday school, you ought to be. For those eight weeks particular, you ought to be always. But in those eight weeks, we're going to talk about what does it mean to, to be a body? What does it mean to care for one another? So the Apostle Paul starts out talking about the body of Christ, him being a prisoner of the Lord. Don't you love the way Paul never said, I'm a prisoner of the Roman government? He never said those lousy Romans have thrown me in prison and I'm miserable here. No, I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And we know how he did that. He preached to the Praetorian Guard who took the gospel back into the into the even Caesar's household and people there were saved. Paul said, I'm here for a reason. I'm here for a purpose. God has placed me in this dingy dungeon of a Roman prison, which nobody would choose to be in, but God has placed me here for a very specific reason. I am a prisoner for the Lord. Where are you? I mean, where are you? I know what you're going to say. I'm sitting right in front of you, Bill. Don't you see me? That's not what I'm talking about. Where has God placed you? You're not a Roman prison like Paul was, so thanks be to God, you don't have to suffer that way. But, but where has God placed you? What has He placed you in? What kind of job? What kind of position? What kind of, what kind of situation do you find yourself in? For some of you, it, it may be really good. Glory be to God. Use it for His glory. For some of you, it may be pretty rough right now. 
You may be grieving, you may be hurting, you may be in a job that you absolutely detest and feel like you are a prisoner to somebody in that job. Praise be to God. Use it for His glory. Use it as a vehicle for telling people about the grace of God in Jesus Christ by His Holy Spirit. Be Trinitarian wherever God has placed you. And live it out to the glory of God. Paul said, I'm a prisoner. I'm in prison in Rome. But I'm not a prisoner of Rome. I'm a prisoner for the Lord. And so I urge you, writing to those Roman Christians and now writing to those Grace Christians in Somerset, Kentucky, I urge you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Now understand, he's not saying there, walk in your natural life because you are worthy of the calling that God has given you. He's not saying God saved you because you were worthy of that, my friend. God looked down and said, man, there's a prize apple. I'm going to pick it off the tree, and that apple's going to give me glory because it is so good. That's not what he's saying. He's saying now that you are in Christ, now that Christ has done a work in your life, he has called you to himself, he has blessed you with all blessings in the heavenly places, now that God has done that in your life, live a life that's worthy of the calling that you've been given. In other words, honor Christ. Honor Him wherever you are. What does that mean? How do, I, how, do, how do I live a life that's worthy of the calling which I've been called? Well, Paul might have anticipated that we might say, what does that mean? So he tells us. He says, first of all, walk with all humility. Walk with all humility. Humility. There's a lot of people I know that are proud of their humility. A few of you got it? That would be an oxymoron. That would be a total contradiction. You can't be proud and humble at the same time. So you can't be proud of your humility. Humility means that, that you walk in an awareness that you are. It's like John uh, Newton said, when he wrote, uh, the, the author who wrote Amazing Grace, the great hymn, John Newton, after being a slave trader, after being a, a horrendous drunkard and, and carouser and, and all sorts of things, came to Christ, was radically changed, and, and John Newton just simply said, I am what I am by the grace of God. I'm not what I was, I'm not what I should be, but I am what I am by the grace of God. That was, that was, oh, that was Newton's way of saying, I am am humbled in the presence of God because He is who did what has been done in my life. I didn't do it myself. I didn't change myself. I didn't earn a right relationship with God myself. Christ earned it for me on the cross. And now I'm humbled before Him. But, but that humility is what we do in worship and what we do in prayer. But there's a humility that's also horizontal. That's a vertical humility, if you will. There's a horizontal humility. Walking in humility with one another. Not thinking that I'm better than somebody because I've got more or I'm smarter or, or I, I can do more or I am doing more or I am showing them how good a person I really am by what I'm doing or trying. No, that wasn't... That, that's not humility. That's not how you're to walk. You're to walk in an acknowledgement that I need you. I, I need you. 
there's the old Pastor joke that, you know, goes something like this, that, you know, pastoring would be an easy job if it weren't for the people. It's a joke. There's always a lot of truth in jokes, but, but the truth of the matter is, pastor would be out of job without the people. I need you. I need you. I need you because you encourage me and you challenge me and you, you, you share with me and, and, and you, you care about me. And, and man, without you, I'd be nothing. Just as without Christ, I'd be absolutely nothing. Paul says this worthy walk would be a walk of humility. Humility doesn't walk around with feelings on your sleeve. Humility doesn't walk around thinking, well, as long as they don't hurt my feelings, I'll, I'll, I'll be with them, I'll worship with them, I'll, I'll care about them, as long as they don't hurt my feelings. But what if they hurt my feelings? I'm out of here. They do something I think I wanted them to do something else. I'm out of here. That's not humility, that's pride. Saying that really is up to me. I really am the one who's to be served here. And I'll, I'll, I'll be with you as long as you'll serve me. Do what I want. Do what I need. But once you violate that, once you move past that, I'm out of here. That's humility. With all gentleness. The old text, the old translations like King James put the word meekness in there instead of gentleness. I, I prefer gentleness. Because in our day and time, meekness has kind of taken on a bad connotation. You know, we look at somebody that's just kind of weak and kind of, kind of a, a, a mousy kind of guy or girl, and we, we say, oh, they're, they're really meek. They're just a meek person. It's, it's not a character trait. It's a, character, or a positive character trait. It's a negative character trait as we look at it. It really isn't. True meekness, as, as the Scripture describes it, is, is what we might call strength under control. Jesus was the most meek person that ever walked the face of the earth. Did he have power? Did he have strength? Absolutely. When he was hanging on that cross, he could have called 10,000 angels, destroyed the entire Roman government, and all the religious leaders got down and said, okay, it's over. When he was out in the temptations in the wilderness, he could turn the stones to bread. He could have jumped off the pinnacle of the temple and would not have dashed his uh, heel against the ground. He could have looked out and said, okay, I'll, I'll take your challenge, Satan. I'll, I'll just rule over everything that's under your authority right now. He could have done all that. And he could have done that and then vanish, uh, vanquished Satan and there would have been no issue at all. He could have done all that. He had total, absolute power and strength. But it was always under control. It was always caring for others. I, I think even in the temple when he drove out the money changers and turned over the tables and took a, some rope and made a whip and drove them out. I think that was even strength under control because he didn't need the whip. He didn't need to turn over the tables. He could just said, be gone. And they'd been gone. And I don't mean outside. They would have been gone. In the ultimate sense of the word. Gentleness. Be humble toward one another. Be gentle with one another. Show patience with one another. The, the, Paul says it this way. Humility with patience. Bearing with one another. Have patience with one another. Don't we get impatient? 
Don't you get impatient with people sometimes? In church, just because they're, they're not what you think they ought to be or, or they're doing something you don't think they ought to be doing that you want to be doing or whatever, it doesn't matter. But don't you get impatient with people sometimes? I remember a pastor told me when I was a young, young pastor, an older pastor, he said, I had a, had a lady come into my office this week and said, she came in and said, Pastor, I'm, I'm just really struggling. I don't have a lot of patience with people. I don't have a lot of patience with anything. Could you pray, Lord, for me that I would have more patience? And he said, absolutely, I'd love to. Let's pray right now. And they bowed their heads together. And, and, and the pastor, this old wise pastor, said, Lord, I ask you to bring into this dear sister's life much tribulation. Bring to her, Lord, great suffering. Lord, bring upon her life that which hurts. She reached over and took his arm and said, no, 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 Pastor, that's not what I want. I want patience. He said, well, don't you know that the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans that, that our tribulations build patience? And, and, and without the tribulations, without times to test the patience, then you won't get it? That's why I never pray for patience, folks. Believe me, you'll never hear Bill Haynes say, Lord, please give me patience. I try to be patient. But I'll never ask him to teach me patience because it takes tribulation to do that. In all patience, bearing with one another. Or as one translation says, showing forbearance to one another. Now, folks, that is not just putting up with. Paul is not saying here, okay, in the body, just put up with one another. You know, you, they're different from you, they don't look like you, they don't act like you, but just put up with them. No, 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 that's not what Paul's saying. He's saying with forbearance, bearing with one another. That, that's the idea of, of bearing the load with one another. Is someone hurting? Then carry that load with them. Is someone grieving? Then grieve with them. Is someone crying? Then cry with them. Is someone laughing and rejoicing? Then laugh and rejoice with them. That's what this body thing is all about. That's what it means to forbear with one another. That's what it means to bear with one another, not bear one another. Don't just put up. Put in. Think of that differentiation. Don't just put up, put in. Put your life in the life of others. Put your life in the body of Christ. Put your life in a situation where when someone's hurting, you can hurt with them because you know they're hurting. You see, the problem is there's a lot of us sitting here right now who say, well, if I knew anybody was hurting, I'd I'd go hurt with them. Here's a newsflash. There are people in here hurting right now who need you to bear with them in that hurt. You say, well, I don't know who they are. Ah, therein lies the problem. Because the body knows when a part of the body is hurting. I spent a lot of time on my feet yesterday. 
When I got home last night and I sat down in a chair, my feet were killing me. My head knew that. My stomach knew that. Every bit of my body knew that. My head tried to have sympathy with my feet. My feet wouldn't listen. But you see what I'm saying? That's why the body analogy is so significant and so important in the writings of the Apostle Paul. You're to bear with one another. You're to be with one another. You're to care about one another. And as a matter of fact, he goes on and, and just says, eager to maintain, well, wait, before I get there, bearing with one another in love. Remember that the New Testament, I, I've challenged you to do this before. I challenge you to do it again during these next few weeks while we're looking through this. I'll point a lot out to you. But if you got, everybody's got a computer program or a smartphone or an iPad or a, a something that makes life so easy. Go to your Bible program. and Surely you've got a Bible program. You wouldn't be a good Christian if you didn't have a Bible program on your smartphone. Go to the search thing. Just type in one another. Nothing else. Just one another. And see the long list of references that it gives you, especially in the epistles, especially in the instructions to the churches. Here's one another, one another, love one another, care for one another, pray for one another, encourage one another, build up one another. Uh, it just goes on and on. This idea of one another. You one another's over here. Know what you one another's over here are doing and vice versa. And somehow you in the middle just kind of flow with both of them. The apostle saying here, with one another, with each other, bearing with one another in love, love one another. And again, I don't have time to even unpack love, but love there is not talking about an ooey gooey feeling. It's not talking about butterflies in your stomach. It's talking about meeting needs. Real love meets needs. Real love cares for another person. If I'm hurting, don't tell me how much you love me and then walk away. Show me how much you love me by putting your arm around me and just comforting me. That's what Paul is saying here. We're not even going to get to the part I wanted to get to today. Being diligent, being diligent, eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Where does that bond of peace come from? Where does that bond of peace show itself? Well, basically Paul is saying in, this, in those three verses we've looked at thus far, he's saying your life is to bear the like of Jesus. You kind of look like Him. You kind of to know... You've got to know that He is in you and He is with you and He is guiding you. He, you've got to know He's given you His character traits if you're in Him. The fruit of the Spirit in Galatians chapter 5. And, and that's what Paul is saying. Your life is to bear the like of Jesus if you are in Him. And you're to guard eagerly the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. Where does that unity come from? Well, it comes from the next four verses, five verses. I'm going to read those to you, but I'm not going to get into them. There's one body and one spirit, 
just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. But grace, and the word there is charismata, which means grace gifts. But gifts, grace gifts, was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gifts. Then he quotes Psalm 68. What Paul is saying there is, God has gifted you in a specific way to function in the body. God has gifted you. If you're a believer, if you're in Christ, if you are growing in your relationship, and if you're in Christ, you will be growing in your relationship, God has gifted you with a gift to use in the body. Somebody, just two weeks ago, a member of Grace Baptist, if you're here, I'm sorry, I won't call you by name, but say to me, Pastor, I just don't have any gifts. I said, isn't it sad that God is a liar? And they looked at me and they said, well, no, God, God, God's not a liar, God's truth only tells the truth. I said, that's what Scripture says, but he must be li- it must be lying there because you just call God a liar. I didn't, you did, Pastor. No, no, you did. Because you said, I don't have any gifts. I'm a believer. I'm a Christian. I'm a child of God. I- I've been called out of darkness into life, but I don't have any gifts. God says you do. God says you need to cultivate those. I have a feeling, maybe wrong, I could pick anybody up here on the stage, I'll just pick the one that's out front the most. I have a feeling Beth Moody didn't one day decide, you know, I think I got a gift to play the piano and call up the church and say, I want to play this Sunday because I'm, I'm a pianist. You ever taken lessons? No. You ever played the piano before? Well, no, but, but I'm, I'm gifted as a pianist. How do you know? I, I just feel that way. I just think it is. No, she didn't do that. Started out practicing, started out cultivating, started out building it. And you say the same for every other musician up here. They just pick it up and say, I'm gifted of God, I'm going to play an instrument. Spiritual gifts are the same way. You cultivate spiritual gifts by using spiritual gifts, by practicing spiritual gifts. Is it the gift of service? You cultivate that by serving others. Is it the gift of giving? You cultivate that by giving. I just use the two that nobody really wants. But they're in the body and they're important to the body. Or if you've got the gift of mercy, you, you cultivate that by showing mercy to people who need to receive mercy, who need to see mercy from individuals, not just from God. You, get, you see what I'm saying? He has given you gifts. Now, those gifts and this calling that we're to walk worthy of are the sandwich, the the bread sides of the sandwich that talk about doctrinal unity. And we will look carefully at those next week. What I want you to leave here with. 
you are called to be a part of the body if you're a believer. God ordained His original intent to use the church in the world for His glory. The church will be weakened if you're not exercising what God has given you to use in this body. If you're not showing humility toward one another, gentleness toward one another, patience, bearing with one another, loving one another, preserving the unity of the Spirit, spiritual oneness, spiritual unity in love to one another. Think on that. Read Ephesians 4, 1 through 16 several times this week. Because God's going to teach us something more specific about who we are as Grace Baptist Church. Title of the sermon, the series was God's original intent. Title of the sermon was what does God want Grace Baptist to be. I've touched on that today in those issues. Next week the sermon title will be what does God want Grace Baptist Church to be, part two. Let's pray.